this is not just rhetoric. I ask myself this constant question all the time. What is the highest and best use of my time, energy, and resources today? And then what can I do now that mm. I couldn't do yesterday that brings me closer to what I want to be doing tomorrow, right? So now I am the, I'm a person who's been on Shark Tank, right? What can I do that I couldn't have done yesterday? Oh, I could probably teach at Harvard Business School if I put in the work. Okay, that brings me closer to where I want to go because I love teaching, right? So that's a perfect case study. So I'd say to anybody who's looking for a simple formula to ensure that the dots are being connected and you're living an intentional life, just adopt that simple phrase in your life. What's the highest and best use of my time, energy, intention today? And that'll ensure that you're always you know, on this growth mindset. Hey friends, welcome to The Good Life with Michelle Lamoureux, a show for women in midlife who want to live happier, healthier, and more meaningful lives. I'm your host, Michelle Lamoureux, a self-love coach and the author of Design a Life You Love. And together we're going to be doing just that. Each week I bring on world-class experts, best-selling authors, leading entrepreneurs, and also do solo casts with the intention of inviting you to get connected to what you really desire from your life. This show is produced with love every week. There's inspiration and actionable tips in every episode because I want to see women playing a starring role in their lives instead of living on the sidelines. Be sure to join the Good Life Community newsletter over at thegoodlifecoach.com for more inspiration and tips to live your best midlife. And make sure you're following the show on your favorite podcast player. I'm so glad that you're here. Hey friends, it's Michelle Lamoureux and welcome back to the show. Today we have the pleasure of learning how to unleash our full potential from a luminary. Joining us today is Matt Higgins, who is the co-founder and CEO of the private investment firm RSE Ventures and an executive fellow at Harvard Business School, where he co-teaches the course Moving Beyond Direct-to-Consumer, DTC. Right, Matt? DTC? That's right. Okay. Yep. He's also been a guest on... Uh, he's been a guest shark on ABC Shark Tank seasons 10 and 11. He's also the author of Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard, and Unleash Your Full Potential. And that's what we're going to discuss today. And Matt, you'll see that I have marked up the book so that I can go back to some of my favorite sections. Dutifully dutifully annotated. I'm impressed. (laughs) Oh, well, welcome. I'm so honored that you're here today. You have an incredible story. And um, I'd love to- Oh, thanks. And um, what I loved about your book, I just want to say just before we start, is not only is it encouraging and uh, technical in the sense that you you learn what you need to learn, but there's so much heart and soul in it. And so I feel like it's just going to reach like people in a way that's more resonant than a lot of other bu- books on strategy and how to be your best self out there. So congrats on the book. Well, I love you saying that because uh, we can get into it, but it was a very conscious choice that was hard to make because one part of my brain likes to uh, geek out and I teach at HBS and love studies, you know, which would lead, lead towards more prescriptive. But I think a lot of business books are kind of lazy and they end up being written as reference manuals, somewhat redundant. I can't finish most of them. And we learn through storytelling. And so it took a lot of engineering and foresight to write a book that tri- that was compelling while had teaching moments, but wasn't a reference manual. So I appreciate you saying that yes. uh, because it was a hard, I think it was, I think it's the harder choice because it takes, takes more effort to interview all those people. 
Absolutely. But what I appreciated too is the vulnerability that you start the book with to introduce us to your story. So it's very unique and definitely one of, uh, you know, really rising to your best with not an easy beginning. So can we actually start there? I'm going to just read really quickly one part that you wrote. You said, I credit everything in my life to understanding as a struggling high school kid that the cavalry was never coming. The universe owed me nothing. I had one life to live and no one was coming to show me the way. And you made a pivotal decision. So in high school, so take us into the parts that you think, you know, we should understand about your, your journey and where you began. Yeah, I'll begin at the beginning at the relevant parts. So I uh, was raised by a single mother. Her name was Linda Joy Higgins. I actually haven't said that name in a podcast before. I always say mm. she was, she's like a caricature, the mother, uh, Linda. Yeah. And um, so we were four very rotten children. Like, I don't, I mean, like we really were. I was not. I was the good son, of course, the prodigal good son. Uh, but, um, and uh, fiercely intelligent, my mother was. And she chose to leave my father when I was nine years old. And we were living in squalor, small um, shoebox apartment. I think it was like 800 square feet, crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and my mother would um, clean homes for uh, senior citizens through mm-hmm. Catholic charities. Uh, and when I was a little kid, she made the decision that she wanted to get an education. I didn't understand this till after she died. I didn't understand the full context of her life. But um, she had gone through a lot of poverty and abuse herself, never mm-hmm. got an education and was always embarrassed by it. And so she made a decision to get a GD. I mean, literally didn't even graduate school. She ended up um, choosing a loveless marriage to escape from an abusive father Mm -hmm. and and went and got her education. And I always remember there was a time before and a time after. There's a demarcation line that runs through my life of a very depressed mother who had a spark of dignity because she Mm -hmm. had professors tell her for the first time in her life, that you're intelligent. Somebody held up a mirror and mm-hmm. she became almost addicted to it, like uh, slightly in a slightly dysfunctional way. <laughs> like all she wanted to do was go to college. I lived my life. Uh, I always say Pell, Pell Grant to Pell Grant and student loan to student loan. And so she, uh, she just loved it there at Queens College, got her, uh, ended up getting a BA and pursuing two master's degrees. She didn't finish the second one. But the point of that is to say, on the one hand, I was, I was seeing education pull her up at the same time, watching her slowly succumb mm. to her health problems, both physical and, and mental in terms of depression. And so as a little boy, I was gifted with this defiance streak, feeling always that I, I was I was of them, but not among, I was among them, but not of them, right? That's how mm. I always felt about my context of this very, very poor neighborhood where some kids were on drugs, some kids were in gangs, kids were dying. And I was there, but I was like, I don't think I'm destined to be here. And so I always had this defiance streak and as a little kid, I would uh, try to make ends meet by selling flowers on street corners. Literally, mm-hmm. I was that little kid that would knock on your window on oh, Mother's man. Day and try to sell. No exaggeration. That's where I learned capitalism. It's better to be the guy who supplies the flowers than the one who sells them. <laughs> but I would do that. I would sell handbags on street corners and handbags at a flea markets, rather. And then my first big boy job was uh, at McDonald's as the maintenance manager of the party room. Anybody out there who knows those party rooms? And my first job was to scrape gum under the table uh, at McDonald's. It's just not, this isn't like a, an exaggeration, like really was a big part of my mandate. But it's where I learned very early on that if you make yourself indispensable at even the most menial task, you'll catch someone's eye and they'll give you a uh, they'll give you a bigger job, right? And sort of a, I always say uh, more work opportunity is a leading indicator and compensation is a lagging indicator. So I really crush gum cleaning. 
And then I got promoted to maintenance man- manager of the party room. So at the same time, I'm a little kid learning to hustle, trying to do everything I can, becoming increasingly desperate, one, mm-hmm. wanting either a man to come in and date my mother, wanting the government to come in and feed us. And just like we would end up in ER all the time. My mother would tell me to pretend I have a stiff neck to think that it was meningitis so we can get through the ER faster. Always using different ERs for different mm-hmm. doctor visits. Like yeah. these little, uh, you know, poverty hacks, right? But um, but my story is one of disillusionment because also when your parent is depressed and you find yourself parentified as a child, you are, you just want somebody, to an authority figure to step in. I do think we are hardwired with an understanding, even though we can't articulate it as a kid, of how things are supposed to be. And a lot of my childhood always felt like, I don't think things are supposed to be like this. I think Mm. I'm supposed to be selfish. I don't think I'm supposed to be the hero child is meant to save you, but then you feel obligated to take on the role. Yeah. Getting to the point of the story. So I, I am at the moment of capitulation where I was like, this is like hellish and it's probably going to end terribly. Yeah. Is when I, when I decided I was going to drop out of high school. It's okay. So it's incredible. And also I'm being really just very moved by the whole story because I'm picturing a little young Matt and wanting that person to come in for you, but they didn't. And you did it for yourself and you made a really uh, genius decision for a young person. And also, I just want to recognize you also because you must have taken on such a high level of responsibility, which I'm sure is like served you in your life, but also as a kid, that's a lot to have to wear that, that armor when you probably just wanted to just hang out with friends and feel more like a part of you, how you felt like life should be. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I've, I've been telling a little bit more of the true story. Yeah. And I love to actually, if I do write another book, I think it might be more like a glass castle or mm. running with scissors to speak to the people who are born of parents who weren't totally formed. And I say that in a non-judgmental way, but incapable for whatever reason, right? So the true story is, is has a hero's journey of my mother, but also has the reality of a child who's been put in a position that they don't belong in, right? So I, so the, 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 the decision was, this is why this is the greatest gift I think I was ever given was a touch of defiance. Cause I would have these conversations with my mother and she would always say to me, like, you don't know what it means to be dying. And I'd say, well, I think we're all dying and I don't think you're dying tomorrow. And I would have that conversation where the, I should be out hooking up with a girl in a park or doing the things that kids do, you know, totally. I shouldn't be responsible. And yet at the same time, I felt responsible. Yeah. And I had an epic conversation once with her at the, at the table. And she was talking about feeling very victimized, persecuted, you know, no one cared. We used to take a bus an hour away to get uh, food at a food pantry because uh, she was embarrassed to go to a local church. I would say, aren't there churches near us? Why do we have to go? Actually, I have fond memories of going to black churches as a kid, always kind and receiving of, but we would travel an hour away. Anyway, we were having this conversation once. She was particularly distraught. And I remember saying to her, I was like, you know, I don't want to look at the world as if I'm destined to be a victim. From now on, I've decided that things no longer happen to me. I happen to things. Now, that sounds a little uh, um, um, grandiose, but it was very anchoring for me as a kid. And she would yes. say to me, well, that's, that's what a naive kid would say. I said, well, maybe. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, that is, I give you this to give context to how, how did I come up with that radical decision? And then I decided I had seen an ad in a newspaper 
remember my whole my whole quest was to go from making 375 an hour to more and i felt like i was on the clock my instinct told me my mother didn't have that long to live and i didn't know how long but i could feel it yeah. and so i was like i need to make as much money as humanly possible as fast as possible but i also need to emancipate myself because i'm going to lose my mind and i'm going to hate her so there's all these things are swirling and i saw an ad in the paper and it said you know delivering flyers for a congressman uh college students only and it was paid like eight dollars an hour and i was like what is it about a college student that 2x is my income overnight and <laughs> and this was my hack i was like what if i were to drop out of high school and get my GD, yeah. take advantage of a loophole that would enable me to translate that GD score, which back then you could take any GD score and turn it into a equivalent grade point at GPA. And the best schools in the country would take you. Now, nobody ever does this and no one ever does well enough, but it's not exactly a hard test. And so this is, I actually just wrote an article about this. It's going to appear in today uh, on the Today Show that I will say the, the the greatest gift my mother ever gave me, even though she died with $120 in a bank account, was that when I came up with this crazy plan, my guidance counselor said I was going to be a branded a loser forever. You know, all official dumb, rightfully so. Yeah. Just rejected this like an organ transplant that they just had to fight, you know, violently. My mother was like, that's really clever. Like you could you could pull off anything. There was not an, an ounce of doubt or hesitation. Now, maybe some would say that's abdicating the parental role, maybe whatever. No, the, um, the, I agree the with her. Right, the limitless faith. And and I learned so much by that move. So just to ex explain how it anchors the book. So in, when I presented this idea, everyone tells me it's crazy. But also, uh, their the filter of their opinion was corrupted because they didn't have context of what I was dealing with at home. I was right. literally sleeping on a dog-worn mat mattress in an environment that I had become completely completely disassociated from. I wasn't there anymore because it was so tra traumatizing. And then I had a mother who would cry in pain all night long that mm -hmm. I would wrap a towel around my head so I could see if this is the time I need to call an ambulance. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sleeping. I'm working at a, at that point, I was working at a deli overnight, carrying a butterfly knife so I wouldn't get jumped. And then I'm supposed to go to high school. Now here I had my Jordache jeans so I didn't look like <laughs> I was poor. Back then it wasn't cool to be poor. And so... <laughs> Point is, their advice didn't have full context, and second, their job was to manage to the to the mean case, to the average case, right, and not to the edge case. So I always say to folks, just be careful when you're taking advice from people that the people you're getting advice from are probably around the average case, not the edge case. And if you're an outlier, you have to you have to come up with your own blueprint. And so, but the pressure I was getting from the official dumb was unrelenting, picked up by the police, the truancy police that I had my burn the boats move. And here's the title of the book. I, I don't know where this came from. I was like, I need to self-sabotage to such an extent that I become a write-off so that from no longer is everyone resisting my plan, they are facilitating. In other words, get the <laughs> F out of here. So right, smart. because back then high oh schools didn't God, want dropouts. Yeah, like, and so I failed every single class for two years, except for typing. That's that's not like manufactured either. I'm a, I type over hundred words a minute now. Cause I was like, that'll be useful. But I sat in the same land of misfits toys in the back of the room with the kids with the, you know, beepers, the drug dealers. And, and then, and then I executed and the day came 16 years old. Now this all sounds great in the abstract, but the loss became very acute on the last day of high school. Right. It's when I really, at like now it's everything's pulled forward. Like, wait, I've now lost uh, three years of school basically. 
I am allowed to sit on the steps of Cardoza High School because I don't go there anymore in the middle of the day and smoke oh, a Marlboro. Wow. Yeah. Nobody's telling me to get inside because I, I no longer belong there. Wow. And now I have to execute. And I picked my myself up. I took the GD within two weeks on standby, standby at Springfield Gardens High School in Queens, took the SAT for good measure. And then by the time I was 16, uh, I had been enrolled in Queens College. I came back to my prom. A little bit like mm. Maximus in the movie Gladiator. I needed to come <laughs> back to the arena. Story. <laughs> I came back, and I remember Mr. Rosenthal, who on the last day of high school, I tell the story in the book, just says, "You know, Higgins, what a loser! I'll, you know, what a waste! I'll see you at McDonald's." You know, and he was kind of funny, also kind of an asshole. And yeah. um, and then I show up at my prom with a beautiful girl, now on the debate team at Queens College with a three point five, and the look in in their faces, it was a range. The look went from one of either pity or contempt to begrudging respect or love and admiration. Mrs. Vega, who was my homeroom teacher, who I remember to this day, she taught Spanish. She was getting her master's at Queens College at the same time I was getting a BA. And her look was like, I knew you would pull it off. And others were like, like, can't believe you pulled it off. So that's the capstone of the whole story. I tell that because if you rewound, right, I would have either submitted to everyone's conventional wisdom I wouldn't have made the radical decision. I never would have. And it was the right decision for me and the best decision I've ever made in my life. Oh my God. It could be a John Hughes movie somehow. (laughs) It could be. (laughs) People people have approached me about a script and I'm like, I don't know the moral of the story yet. Let's wait to see what. No, I I could see it. I see (laughs) it. I actually do. As you're talking like, this would be such a great like redemption. But I have to do something with my life that, that, that like, I don't know. That makes it all matter somehow. I don't know. Maybe more than what you've done. Okay, we're gonna get where you've been. Well, we'll get into it. So good. It's so good. Oh my gosh, Matt, that's incredible that you had the foresight, and I love that you did have your mother supporting you, and then even that teacher who could recognize it. And was it Rosenthal who said, "I'll see you working at at McDonald's," McDonald's. and you're like, "What did you tell him?" I did. I did. So that was the last thing I heard in high school. I had to return the books and is I always say I said in a book, it's like the equivalent of the academic walk of shame, right? You walk yeah. into each room, although I don't know why I cared and didn't just steal the books, but I had to return each unopened textbook and I um, walk into Mr. Rosenthal's and he does it without missing a beat, just looks to the class and says, first of all, he goes, what's this? He says, it's a textbook. Today's my last day in high school. Without missing a beat, he's like, Higgins, what a waste. I'll see you at McDonald's. And now 30 kids are, are cracking up. My face is hot, like I'm going to pass out because I'm Irish. And before I walk out, again, back to the defiance streak, I'm like, I'm not going to let this be the last word. And I said, Mr. Rosendahl, if you see me at McDonald's, it's because I own it. And then everyone's <laughs> like, oh, snap. <laughs> now, the funny part is like, I said that, but I didn't really believe it. Like, it's not that I didn't think I was destined for doing what I'm doing now. People always say, are you surprised by how it worked out? And to be honest, I was not surprised because I engineered it. None of this is luck or happenstance, right? But I didn't know exactly how it was going to play out. And when he said what he said, it was one of the lowest moments of my life. I always, you know, that feeling when you could hear the blood moving through your ears, like you're just so screwed. Like yeah. I could hear the blood circulating in my ears. Yeah. Like when I sat on the steps and I I pack, I remember packing, I don't know if people still pack cigarettes, but pack my my Marlboro smoked a cigarette. And I'm like, <laughs> man, like that is an epic sabotage. I am 16. But but anyway, just to fast forward, if you would like, I I do it. That set in motion a very uh, second principle that is guided my entire career. Warren Buffett talks about the idea of compounding as the most important financial principle, which it is. But we don't talk enough about the idea of compounding as it pertains to professional success. 
because, and this was inadvertent, because I started high school when I was 16, everything was pulled forward. I started college. I became president of the debate team. I ran for my college for that. I became a journalist when I was 17. I had my own column called the Trib Action Desk when I was 18. Carl Bernstein invested in the newspaper. And by the time I was 20, I was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Now, oh anybody can nominate for a Pulitzer Prize, but not by Carl Bernstein, right? Oh my and I won God, a bunch Matt. of journalism awards. It accelerated everything. So from the span of 16 uh, to the time I was 26, it had completely transformed everything. Now, at the same time, my mother is deteriorating. My mental health is deteriorating. Our house is disgusting. I am drifting mm-hmm. further and further away from reality. And then um, the most you know, incredible professional development happens. I, I end up enrolling in law school. I do seven years at night at Queens College. I enroll in Fordham Law at four uh, uh, for four years a night. I actually never would go. I used to park my car outside the school and I would go to sleep because it was the one place I had permission to not take care of my mother, not go to work. So most of the time I would just sleep outside the school. And then I get a phone call. Uh, I worked for the mayor's office twice, New York City mayor. And I would, whenever I wouldn't get what I want, I would quit. And they'd bring me back. And then I and I quit. I get a phone call in April of of, uh, of uh, or May, May of, uh, of uh, 2001 um, inviting me to be press secretary to the mayor of New York. And I was 26 years old. So I had gone from 375 an hour at McDonald's, 16 to the time 26. And the job paid, I think, $105,000 a year. Finally, well, let's underscore that you were the youngest press secretary. Yeah, I was the youngest press secretary. There may be another one at the, now, but at the time I was the youngest. And again, 26 years old. Unbelievable. Of New York. Now, one, I was overwhelmed by it. Uh, and I didn't you know, want it. And necessarily because I was going into the last year of law school, it's hard enough to take care of your sick parent. I just, well, how am I going to balance working all the time? But I realized like we don't get to choose the moment of our opportunities. And this has proved to be true throughout my life. Like when it comes, you got to take it. And I took the job not knowing exactly how I was going to balance all the pieces. And then I tell the story in the book, which I'm going to ruin for everyone now, but um, because it's not really a story, it's my life. Uh, the night before I go to work, you know, my mother is deteriorating and she's on oxygen, sitting on a tank, sitting in this chair, can't really move. I'm bathing her. I hate my life. But this is the moment where I'm finally going to be free. It's enough money to get an apartment, hire a caregiver and uh, and be free. And that night before she asked me, you know, you know, the morning of, I don't feel good. I'm like, well, you never feel good. Like, And I should have, in retrospect, noticed that she looked, you know, materially different. But I went to work. And I get a phone call from her at 10 that she had called an ambulance, which I was actually very happy about, that finally somebody would step in and I would be relieved of the responsibility. Yeah. I used to always be very self-destructive. I'd always want to be in a car accident so that I could be mm-hmm. relieved. And so this was me being like, oh, somebody's going to you know, take, I don't know, take control. So I get the phone call and I tell her I'm going to meet her there. It's my first day of work. And everyone was so nice. Do you want somebody to take you? We could have a police car take you. I was like, mm-hmm. it'll be fine. And then by the time I got there, she had died. So I have this moment that was years and years and years in the making, this little boy, you know, trying to get there. And then she dies that day. So I tell that story in the book, not because I think my autobiography matters so much. It's because it turned out to be true that no cavalry was coming. The thing that I instincts told me that everyone dismissed actually happened. She died. She never got to go on an airplane, never got to leave that crappy little apartment, never got to use her mind. Right. So yeah. It's heavy, but yes. the whole moral of my book is to take custody and is to trust your instincts and intuition. Nothing I forecast at that young age turned out to not be true. 
And yeah. even though I ran out of time, I was fighting the right fight. So, but she died that day and uh, we could pause there. I'm sorry to be so heavy. I don't know. No, what it's okay. I am so grateful for your sharing. And also I think people need to understand, like, I'm sure when they hear your story, you've been a guest shark on Shark Tank. I've never had a guest. I've done almost 300 interviews. There's never been a guest shark on Harvard. You know, you teach a class at Harvard Business School. I mean, you see all these accolades. So people are going to already throw, if they don't know anything about your story, they've made assumptions, right? I'm looking at you now with your nice blazer, right? You present like you, you look so put together because you are, and you were like, you were, I just give you so much credit. Cause like I said, there's a part of me that feels for like the young boy that had to take on so much, but it's like all those things, we created a foundation for you to really trust yourself and to know that you can do great things. And you felt that within you the whole time. I love that you said the point about if you didn't know, it's one of the big motivators why I wrote the book, as you achieve a certain level of success, especially Shark Tank. This happened to me when I was talking to a bunch of kids at a homeless shelter uh, who are getting a GED. And these are these sweet kids, right? These little babies. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. so many of them, you know, uh are rejected by their parents, you know, they're LBGTQ. They they are they're they're really fighting in their own fight, but yeah. they're striving in a homeless shelter to get a GED. Yeah. And I was trying to change their framing of how they look at the world, saying, Imagine the juxtaposition of the, you getting a GED while in a homeless shelter. Everyone's gonna be rooting for you later on. The point of the story is um when I asked them what they think about me. And like, damn, you got the nice clothes, you rich, you probably have a plane and all that shit. <laughs> then I tell them the story and I yeah. tell them in a way that's way 10 times more horrific than the conversation we're having. And they're crying and they're, and I realize the authority that I accumulated that matters to me is not the authority that comes from being on TV or having a degree of wealth. It's the authority that I have from where I started. And I would rather be known for that than than the byproduct because the by who gives a shit. I really don't care. I care about the blueprint, and I care about transmitting it in a way that's that's credible. And the 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 greatest asset that I now have is the origin story, not anything that kind of came. So part of what motivated me with the book and to talk so openly is like I do not want to show up in the world as a guy on Shark Tank with nice blue suits. So like I want to show up for what I did to get there for those who want to achieve some level of that, who, because of the circumstances they were born into, or we can get into this, or because of anxiety or imposter syndrome, they self-select out of ambition. And I feel like I'm the one to write the Burn the Boats book because it was tortured. And there is, we, I do think it's successful people perpetuate a lie a little bit because they confuse knowing the formula with acting like they are implementing the formula. Mm. And it's like a slight distinction. I was, I always say I wrote my book so I could read my book because I can barely follow my own advice. And I think when we talk on, on Instagram, everyone has this redemption arc. I was here. I stumbled. I, I have risen. And now let me share it to you, my children. Whereas yes. I actually don't think that's the reality. I think humans constantly regress and progress. And I, I wanted to write the book to one, hold myself accountable to read it, but three say like, let me tell you the reality, right? Let me, let me show you what failure and recovery really looks like. Let me show you what progress and regress really looks like. So anyway, you saying that point, I really appreciate it because it validates. It's a big reason why I wrote it is because I don't want to show up as a shark. I want to show up as a kid eating government cheese at 16. You're so awesome. Everything you said is so good. And I hundred percent agree with you with the whole, this is my sob story, you know, and I'm, I'm fixed now and I'm going right. to fix you all. It's like, 
No, but I do right, but then find... also think about it. I think it's actually perpetuating a degree of like um, of, of a violence on somebody because mm. because now the person, the message they're receiving is like, oh, wait, I stumbled too. I, I, I relate to that part, but I still struggle and I'm 51 or or like, you know what I mean? Or my marriage didn't work out. Like, I don't know. There's a, even a degree of airbrushing because most people want the problem to be past tense. They don't yes. want to pull forward the problem and act like it's an everyday journey, I think. So maybe that's my, my wife is the most well-adjusted human, but she might, it just turns out maybe not everybody has voices in their head, but I think we mostly do. I do. <laughs> so my, I definitely do. <laughs> my, my sweet wife, Sarah represents the regulated population. So I'm like, all right, not for you, honey, but for everybody else who struggles. <laughs> well, let's get you. So burn the boats mm. where this is, uh, you know, this, your book is based on this philosophy. Take us into it. Cause I know there's right. history to this too. Yeah. So first of all, it's a little bit of a Trojan horse. I apologize to any, you know, uh, anyone out there who wants the jingoistic militarist burn the boats and screw everyone version. I know that it's what it looks like. It's got a little pagan boat, but the reality is the boat is a metaphor, which we'll get into. But this phrase burn the boats, I've always been fascinated by it. Yeah. It's it it we attribute it to Cortez uh in the 1500s, who was a very bad person. So the book is not based on him, but yeah. he apparently had a better marketing campaign because he appropriated this idea. Yeah. And it goes back to the beginning of recorded history before Cortez. There was a military commander named Tariq in 711 AD who conquered Spain. So little Cortez was probably in school and learned about Tariq taking Spain. And uh, before him, there was a battle in China in 206 BC where they invoked burn the boats and the Chinese even have a word for it. And then in the art of war, Sun Tzu uh, introduces it, right? So I was fascinated by, okay, why is it that every society, every culture has a fabled general when they're outnumbered? They summon an unnatural level of motivation by eliminating <laughs> their retreat when it's the opposite of what our parents tell us. You yes. need a backup plan. Yes. And so it was like, it always resonated with me because I find when I put myself in these situations where I have no escape, I end up figuring it out, right? Because that's when my my judgment is clearest. And when I rely on my instincts and, um, but we don't, we're not taught that way. So I started researching the science and literature around it. What I found epic study in 2014 in particular found that merely contemplating a plan B when you're trying to pursue something yeah. is enough to do two things. One, it makes it um, materially less likely you're going to succeed in your true purpose. Yes. And then two, it actually makes you much less intrinsically motivated to actually uh, succeed. And they tried every way. They didn't expect this would be the finding of the study at a word. They tried every way to undermine it. And the reality is it's a case. Now let's, so why is that? Anyone here who's done um, something really hard, which is everybody yeah. remembers that moment that if it was truly reaching outside of your comfort zone, you needed to muster 110% of your energy and commitment. And the energy leakage we devote to uh, plan B is enough to make it impossible to achieve what you're doing. What the studies show, science shows, we usually conjure plan B to eliminate the psychological pain of pursuit, of wanting something so bad that you can't handle the idea that it won't work out. We conjure a plan B to give us comfort, but the comfort is the thing that erodes that 110%. So what yes. I wanted to present in this book was um, all the metaphorical boats in our life that I could come up with yes. that we use that, uh, that uh, are insidious that make us look for a retreat or an exit. And that can be uh, anxiety, it could be imposter syndrome. In my case, shame. It could be poverty. Uh, whatever it is, the little boat that looks like a little pagan symbol is actually a paper <laughs> boat that I had an artist create that uh, constructed floating in a child's bathtub because the boats that I needed to burn 
were a lot of issues that stem from childhood, feeling that I was unlovable, feeling I wasn't good enough, a lot of just a lot of the carnage that's re- uh, reaped when you grow up in that dysfunction. Yes. So the book, writ large, is an attempt to present to people different case studies, 50 different entrepreneurs from Scarlett Johansson, my friend, to NFL coaches, all about what were the metaphorical boats they needed to burn in order to fully commit. So this isn't like a simple, simplistic, you know, just go all in and hell with everybody. It's a, this book I say is written for the risk adverse and for the anxiety laden who, who self-select out of ambition. That's what gets me excited. The messages I get from people are, I never felt seen before. I have an unsupportive spouse, or I thought it was too late. But I have this dream mm. and I read your book and I met you here on page 176 or I met you on page 90. Mm. And by sharing, um, and I'll be quiet, <laughs> by sharing certain details that I didn't wish to put in, my own divorce and uh, having cancer, um, I wanted to model what vulnerability looks like to give people permission to believe that they're not less than and that it can still be so. You know, and so that's why again I wrote it in narrative rather than prescriptive. It's not atomic habits. It's for it's for the part of life that doesn't <laughs> it's a part of life that doesn't really unlock with habits that requires right. unnatural uh determination. Yeah, it's a great framework. I guess so. Do people say, but because you say you're you're risk averse to some degree, like you'll go through every worst case scenario possible that could happen. So how do you balance that? Like if somebody says, Well, I've got the family, do I, you know, how much of my savings? Like how much, how, how, how much of our boats are we burning? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like well, well, that's and um I wish I the the one regret I have with the book is I would love this to be even slightly more prescriptive in a couple of ways, which is why okay. I might, might add another chapter because I think this part should be prescriptive. So my my process actually and my argument is the reason why we waffle, waver, and conjure a backup plan when we're doing hard things is because we didn't process risk at the beginning of the journey. Mm-hmm. Everyone here can relate to what I'm about to say. You have an idea in the middle of the night. First of all, you hate your job, or you hate your life. You have an idea, an epiphany about a business you want to create or something you want to do, and you're you're obsessed with it. But it also represents freedom. And you don't want to challenge it because you're worried if you undermine it, you'll never have another great idea again. And so you hold on to it so much, and you don't want to challenge the risky part of it. You don't want to challenge the downside because you just want to go. And that's why we say the best decisions are when we run to an opportunity rather than run from a yes. problem. But anyway, the genesis of a lot of ideas, a lot of companies are that process, the epiphany that was never challenged. I argue the opposite. I just simply say, embrace your plan B and your risk analysis before you ever begin. So I have a simple four-step process, which I'll break down, which I call my my risk matrix, but call it whatever you want. So for me, it's number one, I embrace my inner catastrophizer. I let it roam free. You know, uh, if I pursue plan A and it doesn't work out, oh my God, right? So usually- The catastrophizing is over um, over judgment, appropriate, you know, being uh, being abandoned by people you love or whatever, some type of shame, which, by the sure. way, nobody really cares about what you're doing. But anyway, <laughs> so, so step one, embrace my inner catastrophizer. <laughs> step two, because humans underestimate our capacity to save ourselves. We are hardwired as little primitive creatures somewhere in the amygdala yes. to be able to defend ourselves and feed ourselves. And so by saying number two, if my inner catastrophizer is correct, number one, number two, how would I mitigate this all going to crap? And what, what when you ask that at the beginning of the journey, you realize you already have your backup plan. You know the soul-crushing job. You might even have a degree in it. 
like me, I'm a lawyer, right? Never want to be a lawyer. But I already know what my, <laughs> I already have built into my factory settings, the ability to mitigate with my plan A. Therefore, this is important later, I don't need a backup plan. It is already wired in. Number three, what's the probability that my intercatastrophizer is right? Let's do a little handicapping. Why that's important is to confront the absurdity of the things we imagine are going to go wrong. It's usually a very low probability. If in the beginning of a month, you were to write down the things you anticipate are going to go wrong in that month, and at the end of the month, write the things that did, on the right hand, very few things will be from the left-hand column, right? We're very bad, but we need to handicap, but it's very remote. And then four, the most important part of my process, what's my why? Like, why, why am I doing? What's motivating me? What pain would I be willing to endure? What cruelty and ridicule would I be willing to subject myself to in order to achieve my true purpose? When I do that, and I did it when I was going to teach at Harvard, I was like, if I could end up teaching at Harvard Business School, given Amazing. where I came from, yeah. I would come within an inch of my life. And I say this literally, most of the things that I do that are that are big and bold, I would come within an inch of my life to achieve. And I say that very peacefully. And I like this book nearly killed me to write it, to promote it, like, because I know the power it has to change lives. That's my four-step process. So here's why all that matters. Now, when you're when you're moving toward your goal and you're trying to give 110%, something will happen. You'll take on incoming, naysayers will cut you down and you will waver. But and the backup plan will begin to form. And when you've gone through this four-step process, you go, no, 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 no. Asked and answered. I already know what I'm going to do. I should not be devoting any energy energy to this because I already identified my soul-crushing job. I trust my ability both to figure it out. So that, so my overall argument with burn the boats is that we don't construct ourselves to be able to withstand not just external forces, but the internal forces that conjure a back plan. I needed a whole book to tell that because it's nuanced. And I needed case studies to show how different people take on incoming. I tell the story in Burn the Boats, which I love about Rex Ryan. Uh, Rex Ryan. He's an NFL coach. I work with the Jets, for those who don't know. And we had the most absurd scandal like a decade ago. Rex loves his wife. They have an amazing relationship. But it turns out he loves her feet too much. And so <laughs> there was a scandal where these videos showed up, you know, on the edge of being erotic of, of, of Rex worshiping his wife's feet. It became the biggest scandal, front and back page of the post, whatever. And I tell the story in the book, Rex was decimated by it. And, and I had this incredible encounter with him. I had just walked into his office and and he is pray, he was praying somebody and I said you know Rex I I didn't know you prayed because I do now and he he thought the act of being discovered was going to potentially upend his whole entire life and his mm. marriage mm. and I remember said Rex this isn't the end this is the beginning you're going to go on Oprah and we're going to do a five book deal about how to keep your marriage fresh because anybody who after 20 20 years is still so motivated motivated by his wife's feet that he's making erotic videos that's somebody <laughs> the world needs to hear from and to this day when Rex Ryan sees me he will say there's Oprah and why that story matters and this is the point of the burn the boats framework his metaphorical boat that he needed to burn mm. was a sort of sense of shame around this secret part of his life which is so absurd that we're even talking about it but whatever back then by sharing it and being supposed, you know, quote unquote exposed, the players knew that he was one of them, that he was real. And then he started owning it. He owned it with players, but he owned it in interviews, made fun of it. And it enabled him to become a 5X more powerful coach uh -huh. because it enabled everybody around him to bring forth their own boats that they needed to burn. And so 
the book is a series of stories, some as direct as that, some as more, you know, a little more generic about the different boats that we all need to burn. Oh my God. It's so good. And also it's so freeing if you're really allowing like all those cobwebs or something to come out and just, you know, be like, it doesn't matter what's back there. Like this is actually what makes you unique and it, nobody has the power over you if you own it yourself. You really you don't. You take and their some power people, away. Right. And I feel almost like I'm, um, I'm, I'm stealing something when people praise me for being so vulnerable about, about, a, about a few parts of the book. And then it's like, to be honest, it took no work. Like talking about having one testicle and being, you know, infertile <laughs> and going through the only part that took a little bit of work was divorce because it's like so so raw. But I felt like it was important to put in there um, and talk about my mother dying. But like that, I don't feel like a hero. I I really do believe there is no shame. It's absurd. We're all dying very soon, and so. Um, but the wreck story is so great just because by owning it, what he was able to do for those around him, but also for himself. Totally. Totally, totally. And it's a shame that they would have taken that and made it front page news anyway. That's just a separate issue. Yeah, but, a separate issue. Right. I mean, nowadays, nowadays it would be, you know, everyone's like, it would be completely the opposite. Totally, totally, totally. Um, okay, let me just read from here too. So it's kind of touching on what we were talking about too um, a bit. You said, um, and I just love this, deep down, we all know we what we are capable of capable of. We all see visions of our future that no one else ratifies. Too often, conventional wisdom and external pressures sway us off course. From the time we are old enough to articulate our instincts, we are conditioned to dismiss them in favor of the institutions that govern us and the people who are paid to know better. And you, this is about trusting the instincts. So this is really at the heart of what we've been talking about, right? It's like, so when those voices come in, because I used to outsource everything to everyone, I just did. I was a people pleaser. I wanted to get it right. I was the little teacher's pet in school. You know, I just loved my teachers. I just wanted to, maybe I wanted the praise. I don't know. But I, it took a long time to unhook from that. What, how, can you just share um, thoughts on this? Like, how do yeah. we? Yeah. And a, a big part of what I wanted to do with this book is to write, is to create an advocate for the self in a non and Randian, you know, kind of uh, hell with the world sort of way, more yeah. in a loving, celebratory way. Because one of the most influential works uh, in my life, ever since I was a little kid, and I return to it all the time, is an essay by Emerson, Self-Reliance. And he talks about how the indignity of being forced to accept your own insights from another that you rejected precisely because they were your own. So we all have we all have that moment when you watch an infomercial where it's like, I had that idea. And then you just <laughs> every single person listening has seen an invention. And and I argue. Just because somebody else, I think people dismiss it when they see that somebody else created it. Like, oh, I guess it wasn't really an original idea. Yes, it was. You didn't know that somebody else created it, and you didn't know somebody else would create it. So, I, I, I think those are sacrosanct. And so, how do we condition ourselves to act on those earlier? So, I've sat with this idea a lot, and I've made some big bold bets, and things have worked out in my life. Some haven't, but the ones that do work out are when I see an opportunity that is tremendous, right? And I usually, it's usually born of uh, what I call proprietary insight. It's an insight that is um, emanates from the context in which I live, the context in which I work, or an experience I've been through because mm-hmm. of my unique upbringing. In my case, dropping out of high school, getting a GD and go to college was a proprietary insight born of my mother, right? Yeah. So we all, everyone listening right now has proprietary insights about one, either a new business idea or a new process about how things can be done differently. 
One of the frustrations I have with Shark Tank is it perpetuates this myth that big businesses are actually inventions when most are are uh, ref, uh, reforms to a process or a better way of doing things. Yes. My friend Brian Chesky slapped on a futon in San Francisco in 2009, and he creates Airbnb. Like, what an absurd idea that people are going to sleep in your house, right? But totally. he saw something that you and I didn't see yet, right? right? So we all have proprietary insights. So that's, that is a fact. Every single person here is potentially sitting on a multi-million dollar business. You don't need to do it, but you're at least sitting on a promotion, right? Yes. So then the question is, but why won't you act on them? Right. So I tried to create a formula intellectually that we, you should, we should just accept to make it easier to act on our insights. The, the um, magnitude of an opportunity has an inverse relationship with the amount of evidence there is to support it and amount of, and the number of people who are willing to validate it. It's just common sense. If an if if an opportunity is so great, that means not a lot of people see it or are acting on it. And yet our first instinct is to call other people because we're vulnerable. Like, hey, what do you think? And then if you consult the wrong people who have corrupt motives or whatever, or they're just not that dynamic, yeah. they shoot it down, then you abandon it, then you watch the infomercial. So the purpose of my book is to advocate for the self so that you can act on opportunity before the tipping point of evidence that you could act on opportunity in the interstitial space before the evidence come. I use lightning and thunder as the way to sit. Lightning, the flash that we're not sure if everybody saw it, that's the opportunity. And sound travels a lot slower, arrives five seconds later. That's the evidence. You want to you wanna act before the evidence. And so my book teaches you, not teaches you, but it tries to uh, describe what it looks like to identify a proprietary insight in your life and what does it look like to actually act on it? One of my favorite stories in a book, and I'm, I'm sure you probably noticed, I have a lot of female entre- entrepreneurs in a book. My life has been shaped by strong women, and I happen to marry an amazing one, the greatest force multiplier in the world. So I happen to be surrounded by a lot of women, but I didn't want to put it forth in a very preachy, luxury way. Like the gender is there, but it's not the point of the story. I just yes. want to present them, right? But yeah. there are delightful stories of female entrepreneurs. One of them is a woman named Michelle Cordero Grant. She worked at Victoria's Secret. She was VP of marketing. And she started having this feeling of like, why is it that all of our marketing seems to be a hypersexualized view of women <laughs> from a man's perspective when I don't always feel hypersexualized? And so I think there's room for another brand. And she started crowdsourcing nomenclature around female undergarments. And one of the ones she has, well, women would prefer to call them panties or, you know, like there were these little words. Anyway, long story short, she crowdsources this business, creates a community first to see if there is a business there, launches Lively, her own brand. Less than five years later, she sells Lively for a hundred million dollars. Lively is not an invention. Lively is not a patent. Lively is a proprietary insight about the way things could be done better. Mm. And so I presented so many of these delightful case studies in the books so that you could see yourself or you could ratify that glimpse you had before. And then maybe next time you have one, you're willing to act on it. I love it. Let's talk about vision and goal setting, though. So you write, you can't achieve a goal that you haven't defined. You need to know where you want to go. Only then can you come up with a plan to get there. The best dreams are the ones that emerge from somewhere deep within you, where the ambition is inextricably linked to your unique take, your gifts, your talents, and your soul. So this is what you're talking about with Michelle's story. Yeah, exactly. And and a little bit of a counter to the Harvard Business School student who intellectualizes their way to a business or a solution. Yes. While sometimes that works, it's missing a certain fire. So that's all. I mean, it can work, but I just think it's better when there's alignment. 
yes that, you know god or whoever you believe in put you on this earth to, to pursue it right yeah that's sort of that's my point well let's but, talk about oh god please no go ahead you go ahead. No, I was going to say, let's talk about that fire, that fuel, because I think there there are people sitting with the dream. They're in the rocket ship. They've got the big vision, but they're not going anywhere. And then there's the ones that are heading to the moon, right? They 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 get the fuel and they're going. What's the disconnect? Oh, I love that question because I do. Number one, that, that line you just read is a soft, gentle way of saying, be intentional. With, yeah. your, with your life, right? And yeah. Goals that, yeah. The master of the obvious, right? But it's yeah. worth repeating. 100%. Be intentional. Yeah. But um, the difference between the two, and I see this all the time, I am very, very intentional with my time and, and in some ways mercenary. Mm-hmm. I don't have friends very much. I have people I care about. I've defined my life very narrowly so that I can do what um, I can achieve my dreams. Yes. And I create a very self-sustained universe. My wife is my best friend. Love so, uh, and we toggle together different environments. It's actually one, it's very rewarding, but it's also very efficient because I actually don't, you know, like I had a bachelor party, you know, I went with her. You know, it's like, well, it's more fun <laughs> to hang out with you. Like, we, like so I, it's a true story. I, um, so what's my point of that? My point is, I, when people reach out to me, which yeah. I always, I'm always feeling guilty that I don't do enough and then feeling protective of my time, right? Yeah. Like, but what I find is there's one person who comes forward and they have a dream yeah. and they believe that the act of having the dream should be enough to make them wealthy or independent, mm. but then they want to offload the work to you. Uh-huh. This is probably the majority fact pattern. Okay. And then there's a minority fact pattern, which is like, I have a dream. I really want to pursue it myself. I have a couple of discrete areas that I'm not entirely sure what to do. Can you help me with A, B, and C? Those are the ones that I would lean into because they've made it manageable for me and I don't have yes. to devote more than, you know, 10 minutes, right? Yeah. But the majority fact pattern is is what you said. It's a disconnect. It's a person who has the dream and they want to, they want to, they think that just having the dream is enough to reward them. And it's never, ever the case. And mm-hmm. I, 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 it usually comes to me in two different ways. One, it's the, I call it the rescue mission case. Like people like to go on a rescue mission. Like we should have charging stations that are gas stations all over. And if somebody's going to reinvent the gas station, I talk about in the book. And I'm like, <laughs> well, that's true. But like just being able to identify that we're all going to have really tricked out EV gas yeah. stations. Well, what's gas- the plan? Yeah. What's the plan, right? Yeah. And then, so that's, you know, that's, you know, one version of the, uh, of the fact patterns kind of wanting you to do it. And then another version of the fact pattern is the pe- the person who equivocates, like can't cross the line, like yeah. wants you to de-risk it for them entirely, mm. or you know, and 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 so with those, I'm I always I always open the door, do the best I can. But usually, when I sniff out somebody's looking to to for me to go on a rescue mission, I turn the other way because it's actually unfair when you expect somebody else to save you because that's going to come out of their own life, right, or their own dreams, their own ambitions, and so. Long way of saying ideas are cheap, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like intentionality is what I do. You yeah, have to be I, intentional and build yeah, that and plan. I, and you know what's fun about this stage? And you and I are similar age, right? That at this point in our life, we get to reap the benefit of compounding of all the pain and suffering we've been through. So I look at everything around me. I could trace back to the flowers, to McDonald's. It is a complete direct progression of leveling up and endless uncomfortable decisions where I had to eat crap or, or, you know, or, or just like torture, right? No sleep. And like trying to finish my law school exams, my mother had just died, then getting through 9-11 where I can't even go to class. Like, I'm not, I'm not bragging. I'm saying I paid the price, but yes. I benefited with the compounding. When somebody comes from me now in our age group or cohort, and they're like, 
you know, I just don't understand why things don't work out. I was like, well, I'll tell you. <laughs> like, while I was near death, you know what I mean? You looked for somebody to rescue you. And so a big part of my book is about self-reliance. It's about taking custody. Yes. It's about the best single piece of advice I ever got from somebody when I had a moment of indulgence, and I normally don't, no one of pity. And he said, be an agent in your own rescue. Mm. So for anyone out there who thinks that having the epiphany is the work, is the reward, you've got it all confused. The work is the thing that will enable you to reap the benefits of it. And it's no one ever has a patent that anybody buys or an idea that anybody deploys on your behalf. I love that. And I love what you just said too, because I always think of it as like the through line. You can't see the the dots that connected to get you, you know, that all those experiences actually helped you be who you needed to be in whatever next evolution of your life was. And that it's where you are now that you can look back and you see those dots. But in the moment, they may have been really uncomfortable places to be or really amazing places, but they all come together to like make you who you are. Yeah. And I, I love what you said about the dots. They're only obvious in retrospect, but there is a yes. way to guarantee that the dots are being created. Oh. And it's a, it's a it's a formula that I have used throughout my entire life. I've, I'm better at putting words to it, but it's always been operating upon me. Yeah. Because, is it's actually um, taken from zoning context. When I was a little kid, I had a job working for the government. And I was exposed to zoning when I was 18, 19. <laughs> I worked for a community board, right? And yeah. there's a phrase in the law and in zoning called highest and best use. There's a philosophy principle of, of the land where you always want to put land to its highest and best use today. That ensures that we don't have these relics from, from a bygone era, right? Yeah. So if you think about a warehouse in Tribeca that uh, 100 years ago was used for slaughtering cows, is now uses Leonardo DiCaprio's bachelor pad, right? Like that's the highest and best use of a Tribeca warehouse is to be a $20 million condo. And so, but we are like pieces of land, right? That are constantly, the context around us is constantly changing and we are changing. So every week, sometimes like quicker, I ask, what is the highest and best use of Matt Higgins now, of my time, energy, and attention? And if you're an iterative creature, who is constantly living a growth mindset, the answer to that question is going to change constantly. So for example, when I went on Shark Tank, the day after, the highest and best use of me changed because the act of being on the show as a guest shark opened up endless opportunities. But interestingly, you know how we always, sometimes we think there's like, if I just got that award, or if I just had a million in the bank, or that everything changed, nothing is self-executing. And so by asking myself this question every day, it ensures that I put in the work to leverage. And that is the thing creating the dots. So I go on charting. I'm like, all right, let's just be honest. I'm probably not getting on the faculty of Harvard Business School unless I could get everyone's attention by virtue of being on the show. But now now I'm infused with credibility and now I can do it. And so this is not just rhetoric. I ask myself this constant question all the time. What is the highest and best use of my time, energy, and resources today? And then what what could I do now that mm-hmm. I couldn't do yesterday, that brings me closer to what I want to be doing tomorrow, right? So now I am the I'm a person who's been on Shark Tank, right? I couldn't have done. What can I do that I couldn't have done yesterday? Oh, I could probably teach at Harvard Business School if I put in the work. Okay, that brings me closer to where I want to go because I love teaching, right? So that's a perfect case study. So I'd say to anybody who's looking for a simple formula to ensure that the dots are being connected and you're living an intentional life, just adopt that simple phrase in your life. What's the highest and best use of my time, energy, intention today? And that'll ensure that you're always you know, on this growth mindset. 
also a bit exhausting. Somebody listening, like, that sounds like a lot of work, Matt. <laughs> well, hard work is, I, I'm all about that. So if yeah. that's what it takes, I love that. That's like a goosebump moment. I just want to ask you quickly before we wrap up, just about anxiety. So we talked about how somebody could see you, you know, so successful by anyone's definition, right? I think we should all define our own, but clearly you've achieved success, you know, beyond measure. Um, what advice can you give about managing anxiety and, or even the those voices maybe of shame that inevitably creep in as we push push forward to be ourselves. Cause sometimes when we hit those those tipping points, we get scared, you know, and the anxiety comes in and all the mean voices want to come in and, and tear yeah. you down. So how do you how do you how do you manage that? Well, uh, one is talking about it. And uh, for, for those who haven't read the book yet, uh, and we why don't we use these as cousins, right? Anxiety and imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, uh, that one, I think it's important to acknowledge that um, that actually imposter syndrome in particular <clears throat> is really actually a feedback loop for doing hard and uncomfortable things. If you're somebody who's actually never experienced or don't experience imposter syndrome, it's, it's because you're not putting yourself probably in uncomfortable, unfamiliar environments. And if you break down at a neurological level what's happening with imposter syndrome, it's because the brain is very efficient. Any mother knows this because you read Good Night Moon to your children all the time. And weirdly, they want to hear it for the hundredth time. You are <laughs> one big, long Good Night Moon. Your whole life is your brain is looking for repetition because it's uncomfortable to put on new neural tracks. Mm. So when you experience imposter syndrome, it's your brain, it's your brain pining for the neural track. It doesn't have one, but now it's going to put one down. And when you're on the other side of it, you're going to feel better. I tell the story in the book which took me a, a bit to decide to do it because for the following reason, if you watch me on my first episode of Shark Tank and I was only 41 or whatever, you'd say like, oh, he's like pretty much a natural. That was great. Lawyer Grenier came to me afterwards and said, never since the beginning of Shark Tank has somebody walked on here like they have been there from day one. I say that not in a self-aggrandizing way. I say because, okay, do I allow the tape to speak for itself? But the tape uh, represents a lie. That effortlessness is acting. The reality is, is that I crumbled before I went on that show. And I tell the story in the book. I won't go into it now, but, yeah. it, but it's, it's quite pathetic. But I I opened up to Damon John in the dressing room. I said, hey, I am, I'm a mess. And I was shaking like a rabbit. I don't know why, but I feel like I'm. this is gratuitous. And I'm putting myself yeah. in this way. Yeah. I got all the naysayers, whatever. And Damon, after using a bunch of F-bombs about everybody else, says to me, Matt, you belong here because you are here. Mm. And I love that point. So to anyone, I'm going to address the both parts of your question, but for anyone who has the cousin of anxiety, imposter syndrome, and studies show actually a higher degree of women acknowledge the truth about it. But I actually think both sexes do, but yes. one's more forthcoming. Yeah. That there is no final arbiter of belonging, that mm. you have the last word. And if you do two things, one, recognize the only reason you feel this way is because you've you've decided to reject a life of mediocrity and complacency, that you're not settling, you're putting yourself in an uncomfortable position, number one. And number two, no one is going to give you permission to be at the table or is going to give you ratification. It's entirely upon yourself. And in terms of anxiety, and I say this to parents too, that anxiety the, the the anxiety is like a nuclear reactor right like we were always trying to contain these the, we're trying to contain fusion so it doesn't destroy <laughs> the world but we also don't want to shut the reactor down either yeah and so the and this studies i go into in my book about this that successful people 
harness anxiety and contain it at the same time. So you want to use it as a motivator. And actually studies show there is an optimal level of anxiety that you do want to maintain. You don't want to extinguish. Yes. You want to avoid crippling and paralyzing anxiety. So I go into the book about the importance of third person self-talk in particular. For those of you out there who believe in affirmations, it's really important to do them in the third person to create a benevolent superego who talks to you like Matt. (laughs) you didn't come from crap to end up acting like a little baby on the eve of going on an entertainment show, (laughs) like get your shit together, but usually not supposed to lecture yourself. But my point is there's a lot of little hacks Yeah, sharing them in the book, burn the boats. But I, again, back to like, why did I write it? Why did I choose such a, such a bombastic title? Yeah. I wanted to appropriate it for the rest of us who for this, who, for whom it doesn't come naturally, the people who aren't narcissists or sociopaths, or maybe well-adjusted and perfectly regulated. I'm not one of them. I wanted to bring it forward and give the tactics for how to allow anxiety to have a seat at the table, but to live with it, allow imposter syndrome into your life and welcome it as a feedback loop to recognize um, that not only is um, bloodletting and releasing shame, both um, spiritually great for you uh, and um, emotionally relieving, it's an effective uh, management tactic because the best way to cultivate self-awareness is to model vulnerability because now mm. you're giving permission for people. They see that, oh, nothing bad happened. You talked, people have said to me, I cannot believe you talked about your, your, your one testicle and half the balls <laughs> twice to man. I'm like, who cares? <laughs> and also think about the power now. Some little kid out there who's about to go through testicular cancer, and one of 7,000 people a year is wow. going to read that I wear dog tags that say half the balls twice the man, that I have taken something that is that is supposed to be slightly uncomfortable and shameful and be like, no, nah, it's badass. I am probably the only person on earth who has a GD, a JD, and one testicle. So that's <laughs> on that note. So on that note, well, you've been so generous with your time. Is there anything I didn't ask that you want to just mention today before? No, I would just say I love talking at the end about partnership really quick if I can. Please, uh, always. Yeah. I think it's, you know, so important, especially for younger people who don't know what good looks like in a relationship. Yes. I find in my life for those who, um, a lot of times when you end up in a, situation that you're not happy about it's for two overarching reasons one you didn't think you deserved better mm-hmm. or two you didn't think better was out there so i love talking about the partnership i have with my wife sarah because i married what is the greatest force multiplier in the universe and i don't think in business we talk enough about how it's not possible to win a two front war so if you're trying to do really hard and personal if you're trying to burn the boats but every time you come back to the foxhole, somebody is trying to burn your boat, <laughs> burn your boat, whatever the right metaphor is. Sink right, your boat. I don't know. Sink your boat. I'm not right. sure. Like sometimes right. I have a hard time Explode keeping your gasoline boat. on the fire. Anyway, yeah. you understand the metaphor. Yes. That um, you can't possibly pull off really hard things. And and it's okay to say that out loud because by saying it out loud, you, you recognize it's a problem to be dealt with mm-hmm. and you demand more for yourself. So I, I always like to talk here. I dedicated my book to my wife, Sarah, because the truth is the 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 show the book the money like it's not enough to say the philosophy got me there without my partner none of it happens so that's not like a nonsense you know oh he's being nice about his spouse it's actually true so i believe if you have somebody in your foxhole that you find is bringing you back down to earth you know a lot of this coded language uh where you feel unsupported i would just argue 
or encourage you to believe that you deserve better and can get better and that there is a way to create a dynamic where we're both are force multipliers. And so that's it. It's it's a metaphorical vote that I don't think you could necessarily burn because it's not realistic, but you should you should acknowledge. So it's I, say, I say that to especially any young person out there who's feeling that they're in that dynamic and they find themselves settling, that they should challenge those assumptions. Absolutely. And I got to meet your wife before it started. And I could just tell what an amazing woman she was within literally the the minute that I got to connect with her. So I can just imagine um, what a great partnership the two of you have together. And she was, a, she was, and she was a single mom real quick when I met her. Oh, she, she was? She was, she a single mom, you know, we're both uh, divorced, remarried, but yeah. um, she was uh, going to Columbia, getting a, a degree in, as a, as a grown up uh, in uh, architecture and was raising her kids in a in a in a one bedroom unit, and was just like making it work. And she's a licensed contractor, an architect, just always making it work. So for any moms out there who feel like one, it's too late; two, it's too hard, or your work won't be valued. I think, in particular, single mothers are Jedi because you got to balance so many hard, painful variables at the same time. I seen it firsthand with my my uh, my wife Sarah. So as a result of all that uh, all that challenge. She's the most efficient person at toggling at things. So anyway, there's a not any single mother out there who feels like the die is cast. Uh, that's not the case. And um, and the businesses that I've seen that have been launched by moms in particular pull off some incredibly extraordinary things because you have to be so mercenary about your time. I love it. I always think that you just get a group of moms in a room and they'll solve any world problem. <laughs> really, honestly, it's true. And I, again, like I love, I love telling one of the last stories in the book is about a, a woman named Vicky. I tried to recruit her to join my firm. It's such a great story. She runs a firm called The Village. Anybody out there, just if you ever need a social media firm, Vicky's amazing. And I tried to recruit her to join a firm I created called Daris eight years ago. It's stories in a book as well. And we got close and Vicky turned it down. Hadn't heard from her for a while. And then this firm kept coming up and it was the village and people like got to hire. Anyway, so I reach out to her and I reconnect with her. She built a firm, over a hundred people, only women. After she decided to turn, after she turned me down, she decided she wanted it all and wanted to create a business, but that she could design the culture to enable her to be the mom she wanted to be. So she only hired women, (laughs) built this firm. This is an incredible sliding doors moment. This is how I choose to end my book. She's the last story of the book. Rejecting my job, burning the boats, creating something that worked for her. And both Jesse and her sell her firm, let's just say tens of millions of dollars at the same time. Wow. And, and so there's no point to that other than like it's no. one of the stories I put. The Go book. women. This show's for women. We love yeah, that you're yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. women so and it's like it's yeah, exactly. And I do last point, I I really tried hard in the book to present these case studies without again being luxury. Nobody wants to be lectured. I think people want to be celebrated and they want to commiserate. So hopefully, hopefully I accomplished that in the book telling these delightful stories, but Vicky is the last one. Isn't that a great story? Turns us down and goes and makes amazing. She took, I mean, she burnt the boat. She did the strategy and she's just another example of that. It works. Um, How how do you define what living a good life means? What does that mean to you, Matt? I mean, peace uh, Peace. to be reconciled. I really, I really do. I have not, I have not achieved it yet. (laughs) Like I think it's the next chapter. I really do think it's, I mean, as we get a little bit older, right. It's just, you just want to be peaceful and content with your choices. Now, to go a little bit deeper, I think the goal for me is to, uh, at least mine, is to eliminate regret. I think regret is the worst human emotion because it's entirely Mm self-afflicted. So I do think you're able to forecast your deathbed or your epitaph and work backwards. So I am constantly, I know what I want my epitaph to say. 
So I've got that down and I know what I would regret on my deathbed. So I'm constantly trying to mitigate that. And from those two come peace, I think, right? So for my debt, my epitaph, you know, therein lies a dad who did the best he could. Like, I know I wanted not to do the best I could, the best they, what they wanted, but at least if I could at least do the best I could. And then um, for my uh, epitaph, I mean, for my deathbed in terms of regrets, I know it's the moment when with times when I was not present and I worried about what other people think affect my behavior. I am 1000% positive. That is the number one thing we regret later, because that means we live life on someone else's terms. And to the horror of realizing that when we get older, then nobody gave a shit. Like I tell kids at Harvard that all the time. I was like, what's one thing you want to say to your young version? I'm like, I'm telling you, nobody cares. And all you, and in order to prove that to yourself, all you have to do is ask yourself, how much do you really care about anybody? You maybe gossip with your friend because it makes you feel bad when you're insecure or whatever. You're catty for nine seconds, but you don't devote a lot of your energy caring what other people do or think uh, well, you, about what they think you do. Um, and I think the sooner we learn that, especially the younger you learn that, the more time you have living your life on your terms. And studies show, you know, uh, people who've been in hospices, there's a great book about this. The number one lament that people have on their deathbed is that they live life on someone else's terms. And so I'm always trying to manage that. I'm not great at it, but I'm getting better at it. Thank you. This was like, and what you just said is literally the intention behind the show is to embrace and live life on your terms and get all those voices out and start tuning into your inner voice. Um, Matt, everyone's going to go buy this book because they just heard the heart and soul that you have and your intentionality with what you produce with Burn the Boats. Um, where do you like to direct people? And I was on your website, by the way, playing with Triton before we started. So tell us where we <laughs> What did you think? Did you ask it? Well, questions? I was like, why? Um, why? What? what yeah, I asked, um, what, who were you writing this book? Who was this book written for? I wanted to That's- see what Triton would say. Did he give you a good answer? Yeah, there was like four things. It yeah, was like actually, let's get let's was... the audience really quick. This is the other part of my my geeky brain, right? Yeah. Like I, I am um, uh, AI. AI, I think, is the greatest uh, wealth creator of our lifetime and the great okay. equalizer. It's enabled anybody who had a skill gap or who believed that they were, you know, from a from a from a region of the world where they can't pursue business, no one will take them seriously. Whatever is the reason that you felt was a barrier to you launching your idea has yeah. been eliminated. It is the great excuse killer. And so I'm really passionate about it. And I I think that those who are warning or fear-mongering are actually doing a disservice to a vast number of people who take who listen to that and say, oh, AI is bad, when in fact it's a race, right? And so I want to model what that looks like and modeling what acting on opportunity before the tipping point of evidence is. And so I said, what if, what if the book never ended? What if, and this is also born by me feeling a responsibility for those who read this book and then take some type of radical action. I'm like, I know when the further you move away from a catalyst of inspiration, the harder it is for you to remember, wait, why did I do that? Why was I so excited after I read the book? Totally. Yeah. So I said, I'm going to train an AI model, which I did on everything to do with burn the boats Every historical battle, every study I used in the book, which I didn't have to only footnote, I included every single study, every interview I've ever given. And I took the entire book in, see what the publisher says. And the goal is to create an AI trained model. I didn't want to give my name. So I gave an alter ego. I called it Triton because Triton is the son of Poseidon. And he had the power to calm the waves because I have to extend this metaphor ad nauseum. So he's called Triton. But as a result, 
if somebody out there is about has read the book and they feel connected to me in the story, which does happen on an emotional level, right? Yes, they yes, feel a little bit sure. lonely and I, I don't have time or whatever. He can't get me. Now you can go to Triton 24 hour day. I have a big interview tomorrow. Remind me about imposter syndrome. And what's amazing, it's like a little benevolent monster that is iterating and he comes up with stuff. I'm like, I didn't put that in there, you know, like, but um, again, I don't know how much people ever use, thousands of people have used it, but but mostly I'm trying to model multiple things at the same time, acting on opportunity and also providing a, a way for the book to never end. And people keep asking, are you going to write another book? And I'm like, I don't, why would I write another book? I'm not done with the journey. Like I, I have unleashed something. I now, there are holes in the book. There are places yeah. where the book doesn't totally hold up. And so rather than write another book, I want to, I want to keep adding to the book every time I find a vulnerability and Triton is my way of doing it. Um, I, I love it. So just so people know that's over at burn the, um, burn the boats book.com, yes. which is right where you can learn more about the book. And yeah, then so that's Triton where is a Triton, burn the boats book. Yes. And then if you want to buy it, um, it's on Amazon is great. Reviews are everything. So if you could review it, DMs every day, I wake up thinking that my behavior is cringy by promoting it. I, like every other human being, also needs to resupply my motivation. When you DM me saying that it moved you, especially somebody that I should not be able to connect with where I am now, you know what I mean? We're in such a balkanized world, right? You're a white middle-aged male. What do you have to tell me? When I receive a message from a woman or somebody who's an immigrant or young person, it's like, that's honestly the greatest accomplishment of my life, that I could reach across the divide and touch someone. So DM me. I read every single DM that anybody sends. On Instagram, Matt, is that a on, on Instagram or okay. on LinkedIn? Yeah, and those are the things that keep me doing these conversations one more day to reach yet more people. I love it, and all of the show notes for today will be over at thegoodlifecoach.com with all the links we just talked about and ways to uh, just give uh, Matt some feedback, give him some love for the great book and this interview. And what a pleasure! I mean, you are so fascinating. This was. Thank you. Beyond expectations. And I'm so grateful to you. So, um, and thank you for showing up with such heart and soul in the way that you are presenting information so that it actually can be reached globally in a way that people can feel uh, not alone and encouraged. Cause that's what, I, that's how I feel. Like, I'm like, okay, I, I can do this. So thank I you. Love so that. Much. Thank you. And thank you for like letting me talk to your audience in particular. If I, there's one thing I want to do more of is to be able to reach more women, talk about the book, because again, the, I'm building a brand and one would think reflexively, that oh, there's another crypto bro with another leg. And it's not, it's a Trojan horse. And so I do think when, especially when women read the book and, and I think uh, you're able to see yourself uh, intentionally because of how much my I owe my success to strong women. Um, I appreciate you letting me get, um, spend time with your audience. Total, total honor. So thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Have a great day. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So If you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. 
So thank you as always for tuning in and I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.